Welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Welcome to the sixth episode of the inaugural season of the Hublic Sphere, an interdisciplinary podcast brought to you by early career researchers at Trinity College Dublin's Long Room Hub. My name is Elizabeth Foley and I'm a PhD candidate in Classics at Trinity and an Irish Research Council postgraduate scholar. This season has focused on modalities of power and it has engaged with experiences and expressions of power in vastly different and illuminating contexts. For this episode, we move to classical Athens. The political system that came into effect in Athens at the end of the 6th century BCE has come to be known and celebrated as the first democracy. This political experiment of direct democracy, Demokratia, is one of the widest recognized and most esteemed legacies of ancient Athens. But this political system did not include many members of Athenian society, such as enslaved people, medics who were foreign residents in Athens, and the group at the center of this episode, women. Though ubiquitous in everyday life in Athens, these people were excluded from political power. How could women participate in a society that excluded them on such an important level? Here to discuss and share their insight on some sources that can help us understand aspects of women's experiences in this context of political powerlessness are two scholars. Dr. Carrie Sawtell holds an MA and PhD from the University of Sheffield and recently held the Macmillan Rodwald Fellowship at the British School of Athens and is currently training to teach history. Dr. Catherine Backler is an examination fellow at All Souls College at the University of Oxford, where she recently defended her doctoral thesis. Thank you both so much for joining me. To begin, could you say a bit about your research? So I've just finished my doctoral thesis, which was on women's relationships in classical Attica. So I was looking at the way that as women moved through their lives, they kind of built up social networks, how they sort of created and developed relationships through their work, their relationships with enslaved people in their homes and so on. And since then, I'm working on a newer project on Lysias. Um, who's a Greek orator. Absolutely brilliant. And Carrie, what about you? So it's about two years since I completed my thesis, which was entitled Non-Citizen Commemoration in 5th and 4th Century BC Attica. And what I was interested in doing was looking at particularly the visual representation of uh, non-citizens, which included metics, which were free resident foreigners in Athens and uh, enslaved persons. And I was looking at both male and and females, but we'll probably talk more about the the women today. Uh, And then my research when I was a Macmillan Rodwald uh, fellow at Athens chose to focus particularly on the the funerary sphere of that, so funerary commemoration, uh, and looking at uh, a particular word's usage in, in Athenian and then in broader Greek funerary commemoration and looking at how often that word links to slaves or not and what the different how the word was used differently for men and for women so there's sort of like a gender dichotomy with that word there. Throughout your research did you see any changes in the approaches towards understanding the lives of women in in ancient Greece and particularly ancient Athens? So one thing which I've noticed. There's been a move from a sort of more pessimistic approach, I think, in in feminist scholarship on ancient women to a more sort of what we might call a more optimistic approach. I would say that the pessimistic approach is kind of characterised by uh, an emphasis on the oppressive force of patriarchy on the lives of women, whereas a more optimistic approach 
sort of draws out what women were able to do despite the strictures of their lives. I suppose just partly because of the the work I do, it's probably slightly more in the optimistic camp. I'm looking at the relationships that women did form and how they enrich their lives and how how women were able to do things through those relationships. I do sometimes worry, um, and I'd be interested to know what, what you think about this, Carrie, when you're thinking about metics and enslaved people, whether I sort of I mean, I, I think there's also a risk of going too far and, and you know, glossing over or um, kind of playing down the, the real kind of material difficulties and disadvantages that women or enslaved people or metics faced. Absolutely. I think that that's something that we will keep coming back to when we look at these issues, that there is always the danger and we find it in many areas of the ancient world that when we kind of go for an agent-centric approach and look for agency, that there is the danger that we sort of, as you say, we gloss over the very real struggles, the very real inequalities that, that were there and that were, were still there for their lives. Carrie, did you find that also in your in your research? Yeah, and I would have come to this. Um, so I agree with, with Catherine there in that we are trying to give, you know, women or otherwise disenfranchised people, so metics and slaves, you know, a voice, give them agency. But as you said, these traumatic experiences or the very real ways in which they they were disenfranchised or excluded. So it's just about framing these um, narratives or these inquiries in the right way and that we, we don't want to go too far. We don't want to discount the fact that, you know, there were very real legal frameworks in Athens in which these people existed in, but they weren't necessarily omnipresent there were opportunities for these people to engage with each other and to interact and form networks despite the legal and political boundaries but we need to be careful that we don't forget about those legal political structures because they were very real is it possible to discern a difference between the attitudes that contemporary people or contemporary writers had about non-enfranchised people and women versus their experience of being in that society is that something that we can that we should tease out a difference there or or not that's a very difficult question because as your question kind of implies you know most writers certainly literary writers are they're not just men and mostly citizen men um but you know they're they're very rich highly educated men and it's difficult to access other viewpoints I mean I think when we're talking about kind of classical Athenian attitudes to, say, women, metics, enslaved people, uh, we have to remember that, you know, women and metics and enslaved people were part of classical Athenian society. And also that, you know, within all these groups, people will have had their own views, their own opinions, their own experiences, and also their own kind of contradiction. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is the relationships you find between for example, free women and enslaved women in, in, in the free women's homes, where you have these relationships where the, you know, the enslaved woman's body is literally owned by, by the family, the free family with whom she lives. But there are these kind of very fraught, very difficult relationships there. And there is some kind of affection. Asymmetry is a really useful thing to think about. You know, you've got people in relationships where both people are kind of acting in the relationship, but the the parameters within which the people act are very different, um, depending on all sorts of things and, and legal status, but also other, other factors. Um, but to go back to this question about teasing out perspectives, one of the things that I've been quite interested in are inscriptions which 
are in women's voices. So for example, so-and-so, where that's a woman's name, dedicated this to so-and-so God. And it's very hard to kind of pin down exactly the extent to which that's a woman's voice. Has she come up with those words? Is it just a, a given formula? Um, has she paid for the monument? With whose money? And, and this is very much Carrie's expertise with non-citizen commemoration as well. So for metics and, and enslaved people, you know, where does the money come from? Who chooses what's on it? Within what kind of framework? But I think that's a that's a very useful place to begin to look for for women's viewpoints because you know even if you took a fairly conservative view and you said well actually someone else wrote these words for the woman you know if she's giving it in her own name I think it's quite odd to say oh well actually that's just some man writing and using her as a mouthpiece you know I mean if a woman says I dedicated this to the god that's what she's trying to say that she dedicated this thing to the god. I think there's a nice point here to be made about uh, what Catherine's just said about um, inscriptions and whose voice is that? And so I was interested in the iconography, so the visuals and this idea of representativeness. So in sort of 5th and 4th century BC Athens, we have sculpted funerary monuments. So we see the deceased with their family members or with their slaves and they're represented visually. Um, but we see a lot of the same stock images. So although we can talk about metic and slave funerary monuments, to what extent are they a metic and slave experience? Um, and you could flip that around and say, well, to what extent is this all citizens experience when we're seeing these same stock images? So there's this idea of thinking, well, who's represented it? Is, are we thinking about broader societal ideals and therefore it's not representative of this, their experience? Or again, can we say, well, these broad societal ideas weren't the exclusive property of citizens that you know other people could bind to these as well you know these ideas about family and gender ideals were were they an exclusively citizen thing when I was sort of collecting my data as I said I'm interested in the the iconography so for me to be talking about these monuments in my thesis there needed to be some some surviving iconography but we also needed an epitaph to be surviving to be able to to identify well who was this person not least because we've got stock images so the only way to kind of say anything about the status of these people was to have this image and text surviving together so that narrows it down for you before you before you go anywhere and inscriptions as you said Catherine and carry your research on the funerary monuments and their texts and iconography really seems to be a way to kind of grapple with this issue and a way to really think about perspectives one of the things which is slightly more kind of <laughs> hope giving for for studying kind of alternative perspectives so Carrie talked about how how we have these kind of stock images sometimes on on tombstones and how there's a need to look at them uh, in coordination with texts to to individuate them um, and we do find quite a lot of individuality in inscribed texts both in in tombstones and dedications and so on one really beautiful tombstone is set up by a woman called Euthilla for a friend of hers called Beote, and she describes this woman as her friend, her, her Tyra, her companion. And, you know, she talks about the, the love and trust that she had for her. You know, one of the things that's unique about that is that it's a woman setting up a tombstone for another woman, which is quite rare. But there's, you know, there's a real sense of a relationship there um, and of, you know, a choice, a choice of words which refle reflects her 
you know, her feelings about her friend, you know, this, this trust, this affection. And that that's quite exciting. Something that seems to be, for want of a better word, a landmark in the history of women in Athens is a so-called Pericles citizenship law. Passed in 451 BCE, it said that to be a citizen, and the Greek here is interesting to have a share or to participate in the polis, you have to have citizen parents. What can this mean for a woman? Does this state decision suddenly increase her value as a being? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. I think the fact that a child citizen status is in part dependent on the mother does change things for women insofar as it puts a premium on being an Athenian mother, uh, on being an Athenian woman, because because that makes you into someone who can have Athenian children, who can give an Athenian man an Athenian child. And Robin Osborne, who's an ancient historian currently at Cambridge, he's argued that we see from this point of from this point onwards more kind of domestic scenes on on tombstones um, and certainly we see more women commemorated on tombstones which might reflect this kind of enhanced status of women. The, I mean the kind of question that follows on from this which is really interesting and very pertinent to this question of power that we're getting at today is the question of whether women who were born of an Athenian mother and an Athenian father were citizens and what it means to be a citizen and, and this phrase to have a share in the polis. And I mean, really, I think this turns on what we understand by the English word citizen, which, you know, um, and I think you're, yeah, you're absolutely right to, to talk about it in terms of the Athenian phrase, to, you know, to have a share in the polis. When we talk about citizen as an English word, what we mean is someone who has a level of political power or, you know, a, a participatory role in political decision making yeah or um, the option to have that if right. they choose yeah so there, there has been an argument and it's it's championed by you've seen a block that the women were citizens and that they exercise their citizenship participation in in the polis um in the state through religion um and through bearing citizen children whereas men exercised it you know in the law courts in the assembly i think it's very true that women's citizen status, and I think citizen status is a very helpful way of kind of getting around the issue, does grant them important legal social privileges, which are denied to enslaved people, to metics and to non-Athenians. And it does also give them a stake in the city as a socio-political entity. And I'm sure it also gives them a sense of self-value. The extent to which it gives them power is a different question. Um, it doesn't give them political power. It might give them, and I think they probably perceived it like this, a kind of a ritual power in that their ritual actions had importance for the city and the community, but it doesn't give them political power in any sense that we would understand it. And so I'm a little bit wary of an argument that I think begins to verge on kind of equal but different, which I'm, I'm quite uneasy about. And I think it risks attributing to women, yeah, a level of power that they just didn't have and, and deflecting attention from, from real inequalities there. Catherine's briefly mentioned um, the effect of the 451 law on funerary monuments. Um, and she's right, because if we if we look at funerary monuments from the archaic period, so pre-480-ish, the cemetery is a very male space. You get fewer but far grander funerary monuments that are focused on sort of the male athlete, the male warrior exclusively. And when you do get women depicted it's not in their own right it's generally alongside a male and then 
around 480, these kind of monuments start to disappear and we don't have stone funerary monuments for a few decades. And it's thought that that disappearance of those kind of monuments is connected with the inauguration of democracy in sort of 510, 509. But when the monuments, these kind of more monumental stone monuments reappear, sometime between 450 and 420, and we'll not get into the hows and whys of dating. But at some point in the second quarter of the fifth century, monuments start to reappear and they're transformed. We we see women and we see the family. Uh, and a lot of people have discussed how actually it's, it's only slight, but we probably see more women represented than men on these new funerary monuments. And in part, that might be the impact of the 451 law and having to prove you know, who your mother was and that your mother was a citizen as much as your father. But we see the family on that as well. So we'll see father, mother and children. The, the most common depiction is husband and wife together. And that's whether we're talking about citizens, whether we're talking about metis, whether we're talking about slaves, that is a common theme. And speaking of marriage, let's take it back to how did marriages come about? Did a woman have any say or power in who she would marry? That's a really good question. And it's one that's quite tricky to find the answer to. <laughs> uh, among the upper upper sort of reaches of Athenian society, and maybe differently among the lower reaches, marriages are strategic. As I've said, the, you know, the, the point of them is to, um, to, you know, to beget legitimate children. Um, and that seems to be part of the marriage formula. Um, at the end of comedies by the poet Menander, who writes lots of comedies about kind of family and so on, they often end in marriages, you know, a lot, a lot like Shakespeare's comedies, you know, they, you know, everyone gets married at the end. Um, and we sometimes hear the marriage formula, which is the father says to the husband, I betroth this woman to you for the ploughing, and it's understood as a kind of agricultural metaphor, of legitimate children. So that's the point of marriage, it's for the ploughing um, of legitimate children. But it's also to, to unite two families. And so the motivation there is about connecting yourself to a family which you consider worthy. And there are some interesting speeches where men kind of say, oh, well, this one man offered a, he offered to marry my daughter without a dowry. So, you know, that, that's a, a very good offer because you, you don't have to pay any money. But, you know, he, he wasn't a very worthy man. I didn't really respect him. So I chose instead to, you know, give my daughter, even with a dowry, to, um, to a man who was poorer, but, but more upstanding. You know, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric there. It's, it's people saying, oh, well, we're not really interested in money. We're just interested in being good people, which is obviously quite important if you're trying to persuade listeners that, you know, your motives are pure. The, the key thing there is this idea about creating an alliance with, with a family whom you respect. You know, that would have looked different for the very rich where, you know, there might have been politically strategic um, marriages. But also I imagine, and we, you know, we hear much less from the poor of Athens. Parents wanted their children, they wanted their girls married to men who, you know, were, were respected in the community. We do have a text by an author called Xenophon who talks about managing a household. The text is called the Oikonomicus, the management of the household. And the husband in that, and I think this is really important for understanding Athenian marriage, 
the husbands tend to be much older. So it would be very odd for a Greek man to marry before 30. He might marry considerably afterwards. In Athens, richer girls might be married at kind of 14 or 15. And even further down the social scale, we're thinking kind of mid to late teens. Um, So, you know, girls might be marrying men twice their age. You know, this is children marrying adult men. But what he says, he addresses this this girl whom he's married and he said why do you think our parents chose that we should marry each other so he does portray it as being not our our fathers who've made this decision but parents again I suspect that it differed a lot between families and depended on the kind of dynamics within a marriage can you say or either of you a little bit about this term that we see in regards to fathers and husbands of kurios and, and a woman yeah so the word kurios means something like a man in charge, a man with authority. The the kind of system of Korea is similar, in fact, to the system that's still in place in modern Saudi Arabia. So every girl or woman has a guardian, and I think that's the most helpful way of, of translating this word, who's usually her father if she's unmarried, her husband if she's married, or, you know, in cases where that's not possible because you know she's not married and her father is dead it would be her brother in some cases her son women couldn't represent themselves in lawsuits for example or, or citizen status women couldn't so they had to be represented by by their kyrios um, so that's one one place where we encounter the system there is a law which says that women couldn't make a transaction over a certain amount, and the certain amount is about the cost of the weekly shop, basically, without the permission of her kurios. The tricky thing is we see women, seemingly, making large transactions in some cases. And there's a lot of question about whether the law had fallen into disuse, whether they did have permission, and it's just not explicitly stated. I mean, these monuments, they cost a lot. Who is paying for them? And in the case of dedications which are made in women's names it may be that they're um they're paying for them themselves and there's the a term we get a decater a tenth part or an apaka a kind of first part of first fruits which in some cases um particularly where it's paired with an occupational term for example we have this stone basin on the acropolis and it's inscribed smikithir the washerwoman dedicated a tenth a decater cases like that are probably instances of women using money that they've earned to pay for these stone monuments and, and we don't know whether the kyrios was involved did, did she have permission did we not Catherine, you mentioned your research into women's social networks. Is this a way that a woman could work around the limitations in her legal power? In legal speeches, which are speeches given in in legal disputes, um, so where you have one person um, bringing a legal case against another, they they make a a speech to argue their case or to defend themselves. Um, We often find lots of these kind of social clues. One particularly interesting speech here is is a case where a young man is prosecuting his guardian for defrauding him of his inheritance. And and what we see here is that the young man goes to his mother to ask for help, um, but because she can't represent herself in court or she can't stand on his behalf in court, we see her then kind of summoning her her network. And, And one of the people she calls on is her new husband. So her first husband has died. And so she she enlists her new husband to help her. And she also calls on her daughter's husband. 
Um, and he's the one who eventually fights the case on behalf of, of the sons. And so, yeah, so what we've got there is, is women saying, right, well, I, I need, I can't do this myself. So I need to kind of get the men in my life on side. And the importance also of having kind of multiple, multiple connections to different men. So that if one of them falls through, so the man they're prosecuting is in fact her father. So, you know, clearly the relationship there has broken down. If you need to, to make a case against a man who's closely related to you, you're going to need other men on side. And, and we see her kind of summoning that network. I think this is a good place to bring up the position of Metic women here. Um, and just a reminder from earlier, Metic was a free foreigner living in Athens. So not a citizen, but not a slave either. And Metics had to pay a tax, a metacoin. It was laid down that the tax for a metic man was 12 drachma a year, and that, that was for him and for his dependent. But for a single metic woman, it was six drachma a year. So this idea that a metic woman could exist as an independent entity and was responsible for paying that for herself. And in a book by Rebecca Futo Kennedy, and she's argued that the metic women conceivably had more freedom than citizen women based on the payment of the tax and sort of their access and control of their own money, their own asset. But I think we can draw in here what, what Catherine said about formal and informal relationships. So it would depend on the, you know, the exact situation and existing relationships of the individual metic woman. Can you say a little bit about comparing how we read, say, monuments of a medic woman or a citizen woman and what that might say about ideas of their status and the reception of it? When we, we look at these examples, and I said, we need to think about image and text together here because the dominant image is sort of the, the husband and wife and we see women, obviously, with the husband. So that is the identity that's been played up. And although we've talked about the importance that a citizen wife and mother takes on, especially after 451. It doesn't stop, you know, the identity of wife and, and mother and what that means in sort of a social context from playing to citizen and even slave women. So that's an identity we see. We might, in terms of thinking about economic roles, in terms of professions, we see this idea of the, the wool worker. So the women holding the, the spindles or some other implement that suggests that they, you know, we've caught them in the middle of wall working, that again, we see that across citizen, metic and slave women. So again, their contribution, their power, if you like, to kind of contribute to the wealth of the household, even if they are then not allowed or it's at their husband's or Kyrgios's discretion as to whether they control that income that they've helped create. But that is a theme that we see uh, in the funerary landscape. I think one of the things that's interesting here is that on certain monuments, it's actually impossible to tell what legal status the person had, right? So if it simply says, Bilair, that that's quite a common Greek name, you know, dedicated this, we actually don't know whether she was, whether she was of citizen status or not. We just don't know. And the fact that that's not mentioned, and you know, sometimes you know, women do make it clear. They, um, one way they can do that is by using, as well as the patronymic, they can use what's called a demotic, um, which is a term of deem membership. And deem is a bit like a, a sort of political constituency. And in order to be a member of a deem, you have to be a citizen and those things are quite bound up together. So, so there are ways for women to signal their own status and they do sometimes do that, but sometimes they don't. And that implies that you know in that particular context it might not have been that important we get examples the other way as well where we just have a male name on a monument and i think catherine's right there in that 
you know, sometimes these monuments are going into these spaces where they're talking about, you know, the cemetery, the funeral sphere or the religious sphere. And is the identity that's foremost in their mind, I am a citizen, I am a metic, I am a slave, when we can be talking there about dichotomy between the human, the mortal and the divine, the, the immortal that comes into play. Uh, but within the funerary sphere, when we think about these monuments with just a name, often we've, they've been found, they've been put in a museum and that kind of context is lost. They, these monuments may have sat in a parabolus. So a parabolus is like a, a family plot. So there may have been other monuments to relate them to or like a name steely, so like a, a stone slab with the names of who is buried there on it. So it might not have been necessary that when the, these monuments were originally in situ to sort of over-egg, you know, this was a citizen, this was a metic, this was a slave, because the, the context would make that known. We do have this lovely inscription, which seems to have been set up by um, one sister for another. And the, the sister, she says, while she's talking about her and her sister, she says, while they were alive, they had an equal portion of their father's wealth and they considered their affection and wealth the same. So, so she's saying both that they, they inherited an equal portion of their father's wealth, uh, and they probably had um, a special legal status for women who didn't have brothers, and so were, they kind of carried their father's property. So that's, that's a kind of a, a particular comment about their, their kind of legal status. Um, but but the second the second line about considering their affection and their wealth the same is a really interesting one. It, it says, you know, yeah, look, we've we've made this point about how we're carrying our father's estate, and that's a particular legal role. You know, is is very much bound up in kind of questions of property and inheritance. But also, what's important to us is this affection between us, and, and that's as important as as the wealth. It's really great to draw attention to these examples of women's voices, so to speak. And though they aren't public or state decrees, they surely contributed to the written iconographic landscape of the city. One area that in the life of ancient cities that women could make a contribution, and that is perhaps sim on similar footing to men in the public world, is religious activity. The existence and importance of both priests and priestesses speaks to this. Bound up in this discussion is the key point of the inextricability of religious life and civic life in, in ancient Athens, of course. Is there any power or impact in religious participation and activities for women? Comes back to, to the central question of what power is and what it means to have power. Um, one very important aspect of Athenian religious life and also other, you know, the, the religious life of other, other Greek cities and cultures um, is, is women-only festivals. Um, and in Athens, probably the most important was the Thesmophoria, which took place in autumn. The Thesmophoria was only for married citizen status women. And for three days, they left their homes and they camped in tents of the local sanctuaries of the goddess Demeter for, yeah, for, for three days. And, and they did things like they made sacrifices and they kept fasts. And, and the purpose of this festival seems to have been to ensure a good harvest. Um, Demeter presided over the harvest and also to ensure their own kind of collective fertility. So it's, it's about kind of you know, agricultural fertility and human fertility and so on. We don't have any women's descriptions of what this was like, um, but I think it's it's reasonable to say, well, you know, for for these women, this this was, you know, they they probably did experience it as an exercise of their own religious or ritual power, you know, by doing these acts, by keeping the fast, um, you know, by by going through all the rituals that were part of the thesmophoria, 
they made sure that the harvest happened, um, which meant that they could eat and survive. Um, you know, they they maintain the fertility of the community um, and, you know, ensure their own survival. You know, that's that's not just their own power. They're doing that in partnership with the God, um, with, you know, in partnership with divine power. To what extent is that power? Um, and, and in a way, that's one of the more interesting ones where where the women may have may have perceived this as as an exercise of power. Um, but we might not. We might say, well, OK, the women go away and they they fast they put some seemingly some pig corpses in a pit um but but what does that actually mean about power um and and i think that's a a real a real live interesting question many scholars have pointed out it's still not really political power it's not the exercise of the kind of power that we would associate with political power but that doesn't mean that it doesn't hold tremendous significance for an individual's feeling of a place in that society. Priestesses are so interesting in this conversation and few more so perhaps than the priestess of Athena Nica, her Athena victory at Athens. Unlike previous priestesses in the city cult, she will not be appointed by the genos, that is the family or kin group, like for example the priestess of Athena Polias, but she will be appointed from all Athenian women. And we get this information in a state decree, so it's the state deciding and writing this up. This seems hugely significant. To be an Athenian woman means something for the state in its own right, you know, no matter what kind of family you're from or your your wealth or whatever. There's there's a meaningful category, a kind of almost a political category, and we've we've talked about the problems there of being an Athenian woman. On the other hand, you know, this is one woman. <laughs> and, and yeah, she's got a huge amount of influence, I think. And you know, she she clearly occupies a really important place in in the city and and what it does and how it thinks of itself. There's one fantastic book which must have been one of the earliest doctoral degrees done by a woman in the state in about 19 20 a collection of attic inscriptions that mention women uh, and in her introduction she says in our world today we can't imagine a woman holding the kind of role equivalent to a priestess of Athena Polias or Athena Nika which are which are the two kind of big women's priestesshoods in the city and she just can't imagine a woman having that kind of yeah and again I do want to use the term I think it does matter this, this kind of but is it a political role? Again, I don't know. This role of state importance, I think that's that's yeah. a sort of really sneaky way of getting around it. Um, and, state, and state visibility. And yes. Visibility as well and, and, and public sponsorship. One of the fun things to think about in terms of the kind of influence, the kind of visibility this woman has, there's a fairly convincing theory that a comedy by the playwright Aristophanes called Lysistrata which is about how the women of Greece band together to stop the war, the Peloponnesian War, by refusing to have sex with their husbands until the men make peace. Um, and the title character, Lysistrata, it's been argued, is based on the priestess of Athena Polias at the time, who was called Lysimache, and the names in Greek are very similar. And in, in the play, she kind of organises this collective effort among the women, which Again, really interestingly, and, and it's the central question, it's it's political insofar as it's about ending the war. It's also highly personal and also it's sexual, right? Women kind of achieve this by banding together and refusing to have sex. So clearly Aristophanes, the playwright, imagines this woman as having some kind of social influence, maybe particularly over women. It's very hard to disentangle fantasy from reality there, but I don't think it's an accident that this kind of central figure is probably based on the priestess. She's the woman he imagines being able to unite 
the other women. And also he's super respectful of her. He makes loads of jokes about the other women, but he portrays her fairly respectfully, which again suggests that she was a figure who, who inspired respect. One of the questions about the Athena Nike role is, I mean, so she's chosen from all the Athenian women but chosen how? She's chosen by lot, but the women don't vote for her. One thing that is really interesting in, in this capacity um, is some evidence that women did choose in their own deems, in their own communities, the women who would be in charge of festival organisation of the women's festivals. And we do have, again, from a legal speech, someone defending his mother and saying, all the slanderous things you're saying can't possibly be true because the other women chose her to preside over the local thesmophoria. And, you know, again, that's not political, but, but that's something much closer where it's women making a choice of which women will have that role. And that's in a speech by the author Isaiah, who writes inheritance speeches, um, and the speech is Isaiah 8. You've mentioned women-only festivals. Could you mention some more of the material evidence for participation in religious activity? Yeah, one of the more interesting pieces of evidence we have are these records of textiles, usually clothing, um, that women have dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Artemis had a sanctuary at Brauron, which is fairly close to Athens, and there was a kind of replica mini connected sanctuary to her on the Acropolis. And these inventories, these big lists uh, of all the clothes dedicated to her appear in duplicate in both sanctuaries. And I mean, the level of detail is absolutely astonishing. They'll they'll say, oh, so-and-so dedicated a kiton, so like a kind of tunic, which had a kind of purple wavy border. These incredible details. Or, you know, so-and-so dedicated a cloak, which was kind of frog coloured um, with fantastic adjectives or, or sort of maybe frog textured. I mean, the adjective just means kind of froggy. Um, so I, I don't know what a froggy cloak looks like. I mean, what's really marvellous about that is that these almost all women were able to, uh, you know, with, with huge amounts of practice, hours and hours of practice, almost all women were able to make clothing. And so these women making these dedications, some of which are very elaborate and have these borders, and some of which were simpler, although women were clearly always giving the best they could. We have the records of the dedications, but also, you know, implicitly of the work that went into them. We learn that that there's a kind of, to take the example of the woven border, you know, that, that tells us a lot about, about the work that went into it and the skill. And, and it's remarkable that we have these records um, of dedications. Um, and and they, they give us this very helpful insight into, into what religion might have looked like in women's sort of ordinary everyday lives. So Artemis is particularly associated with childbirth. So one possibility is that women might have given these, these dedications to the gods as, as thanks for successful childbirth. And again, the kind of emotional stories behind that. Childbirth was incredibly dangerous, incredibly painful, very, very, very frightening. And the kind of sense of relief and gratitude that's implicit in these dedications does give us access into what women's lives look like and, and into their experiences of their relationships, you know, with, with the God and, and with other people. When we think about the votive reliefs, so those stone reliefs again, often they're damaged and we don't have an inscription preserved or we didn't have one in the first place but there are a few examples where we see groups banding together to make a joint dedication so for example we have a dedication to pan and the nymphs by a group of washers and the so the onomastic evidence so 
the names of the people suggest that we've got at the very least sort of metics and slaves and potentially citizens as well dedicating together as a group and what brings them together to dedicate is the fact that they are washers as opposed to any legal status that sort of connects and binds them so that we're having an identity that cross cuts those legal status and brings them together to make this dedication. There, there are other arguments as well around that, you know, we have groups band together to make dedications to make it affordable because we're thinking about people of a certain status here. But leaving that aside, it, that example of the dedication to pandemics, it does stay, and this is a dedication by the washers and then goes on to give all their individual names. So that identity is the one that they are presenting and promoting in that space. We get a sense of occupations women could have from funerary monuments. Priestess is one that we see uh, a few times. So again, we're talking then about sort of citizen women, because as you said, those kind of priesthoods and priestesshoods relate back to the genos and their um, sort of picked or or get the role through through that sort of citizen link. Um, but on the on the stele for those women who were priestesses, those funerary stele. Um, you see sort of common elements or common markers of that office. So this idea of the the temple key and that marks them out as the priestess, you see them holding that or often with certain vessels to suggest, you know, um, acts of of ritual or ritual washing, things like that, or sometimes elements of the dress suggest um, priestess. So it's something that they want to make a claim, something that they want to make a claim to, they and perhaps the the family, uh, something that they want to big up, if you like. So they move away from that uh, more common, those family scenes that we talked about, those husband and wife scenes, and, and they play up an aspect of that woman's identity that you know we could say is, is more her own. Um, another occupation for women, uh, or two actually that I've talked about, um, the nurse again, we're talking, we, we do know, um, going back to things like the law court speech, citizen women or supposed citizen women who almost had to resort to being nurses because it was a, a servile occupation. Um, but we we have examples of funerary monuments, um, I think it was we're thinking 20, 20 something, um, where the women are commemorated as nurses. Often that doesn't look very different to sort of mother and child scenes. So iconographically, we aren't looking at this and thinking, oh yeah, that's a nurse but that they are named sort of Tythe or Trophos, so both Greek words meaning nurse in the inscription. So that identity, as we've talked about, we often have singular male or female names and we don't really have much to hang off them to kind of build up a picture of that person's life or even their legal status. But it's important enough to define these women as nurses. And perhaps that does have to do with, with who's setting up these monuments. Perhaps it is, if we're talking about slave women, their master or their former charge. And so it's important for them to honour and remember them in that way. But then I also said that we get women as wool workers and sort of their role uh, in the household as sort of producers. Um, but that, that is iconography. We it, It's less common than nurse, but it is something that we see across sort of that citizen-non-citizen divide. It's not an exclusively one or the other. So it's something that obviously not all women, because we've not got many um, representations of it, but that women across different statuses or that their family across different statuses felt comfortable of her pride in displaying that. 
women were able to to earn money as as we've seen um and and in many cases that might have been you know that they could in some way monetize their ordinary domestic work so if they were weaving to kind of clothe their children and themselves they might have done some extra weaving and then kind of sold it on and there's definitely evidence in literary sources for that we do have again because the athenians just loved keeping records um we have a record of dedications of offering dishes called fialai, um, which seem to have been made, and again, this is a huge debate, um, either they were made by enslaved people to commemorate um, being freed, or they were made by metics who had um, been prosecuted for failing to pay the metic tax, um, and had been successful in kind of getting acquitted. So, so we're not really sure um, the circumstances of the dedications, but what is really interesting is that the dedicators of these offering dishes are often given with their name and a term which describes what we would call an occupation or, or a job. And it's this huge, great list of the different jobs that people did. Um, so, you know, among the men, we have kind of metal workers and shield makers. The most common one for women is wool worker. Um, and, and as Carrie said, we, we do see gravestones which show women engaged in textile work, so particularly spinning. And, and yes, this is, this is a very important source for, for different ways that men and women could earn money. And also we have in, in Aristophanes, we have um, descriptions of marketplaces where women are selling figs or they're selling porridge or, um, or whatever. And, and I mean, Aristophanes the, tends to portray these women as often quite aggressive. Um, and we, we get the sense there, I think, um, that, you know, these marketplaces are bustling, they're full of people, people are kind of um, interacting, they're kind of getting angry, stalls are getting knocked over. Um, the way he portrays it, they're quite lively places. And in order to kind of manage, the women have to be fairly assertive. And because he's trying to make jokes, he portrays that as kind of aggression. Uh, and he portrays these women as kind of a, a sort of very angry you know, in one case, even like an army of, of, of women. So, so yeah, so we, and, and then that, that brings us around to the question we were, we were asking at the beginning of, you know, okay, so women are, are able to earn money, you know, to what extent does that bring power and what are the circumstances in which money can, can bring power and can bring choices um, and what are the circumstances in which it can't? And, and is that money just going straight back into a family pot, which she doesn't have control over? You mentioning Aristophanes there, um, really brings us back to what we were saying at the start of these different, of teasing out these different perspectives on women. Do you find in any sources gender or women's positions used in discourses about power? Yeah. Um, one thing we do sometimes find is that power is so coded as male and powerlessness is so coded as female that you could, for example, attack a political rival, a male political rival, by describing him as effeminate. Um, so we have this one speech by um, an orator called Aeschines, um, and the speech is called Against Timarchus. Uh, and it's this big tirade against him saying, oh, he shouldn't be allowed to speak in the assembly because he's done all these things that that you know, that don't befit a citizen, a citizen man. Interestingly, lots of these allegations are about his sexual behavior, particularly the allegation that he was paid for sex, um, which then brings into question his susceptibility to bribes, or at least as far as the, as far as the speaker's argument goes, you know, if, if he can be bought, then he can't be trusted as a speaker. But at one point he 
goes all out and he says, oh, actually, this man is a woman. You know, even though he's also criticized this man for, you know, using prostitutes. So you do, you do, that. that's a really powerful insult to use against a man to accuse them of effeminacy. And the, on the other side, we have in, in tragedy, powerful women, um, are often described as masculine, um, and and that's a it's a bad thing. It's a threatening thing. So, um, in uh, in Aeschylus Agamemnon, um, Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, who is running the palace in his absence while he's away at Troy, and who eventually murders him. She's not she doesn't come off well in, in the play. Is described as being man minded or, or or making plans like a man, and and this idea is you know, she's she's transgressive, she's got power that she shouldn't have. It's dangerous, it's threatening because a woman is behaving like a man. Um, and that's that's where we, we see that. So so men accused of effeminacy um, in order to kind of reduce their power um, and women who are too powerful accused of, of being masculine. The Public Sphere is hosted by the Trinity Long Room Hub and is produced by Don Seymour-Kloss, Sahar Ahmed, Siobhan Callahan, Elizabeth Foley, Dr Claire Moriarty and Dr Lilith Acadia, with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes at bit.ly forward slash public sphere, hosted by the Trinity Longroom website. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 